Okay, I wanted to start this morning in, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, but before we get there, uh, I wanted to, to propose uh, a question, and I think it's, it's, uh, it's apropos with what has gone on before this morning and, and what will follow uh, the second part of this, of this morning. Are you consumed with the thirst for God? Because he puts that that thirst there, he also puts the exuberant uh, delight once you find that thirst fulfilled in him. So I ask you, are you consumed with thirst for God? David says in Psalm 42, My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. This is in Psalm 63, O God, Thou art my God, early will I seek Thee, my soul thirsts after Thee. This is in Psalm 143, I stretch forth my hands unto Thee, my soul thirsteth after Thee, as in a thirsty and dry land. And Jesus said when He was hanging on the cross, John chapter 7, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. You know, we're admonished that uh, in John 6, 57 and elsewhere, Jesus says, the living Father lives, and I live because of the Father. So everyone who feeds on me will live because of me. And you know, obviously it, it was a salvation thing, because we, we read in Isaiah 55, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. But as a Christian, and maybe some of us have been a Christian for a while, and, and we start uh, we start getting kind of calloused, getting kind of absorbed in other things. Are we thirsty? Are we consumed with this thirst for God? Does any other thing? Occupy our mind because, you know, in this world, nothing satisfies. Nothing satisfies. Men of all ages, down through the ages, have tried to find satisfaction in this life, and they can't. Solomon, uh, it was probably, well, he was the wisest man to save Christ uh, in his work in Ecclesiastes, blazed out plain. I had an old, my own, one of my own family members back in the 80s, uh, at that time, uh, 60-some years old, had made money upon money, had skied. He was an avid skier the world over, and we could go on and on. And uh, he finally came to Christ because of Ecclesiastes, because of the declaration. All is vanity. All is empty. You know? I don't care how much uh, you have in life, or how much you think you have in life, it's all empty. You will not only leave it all behind, probably somebody that will come up behind you and desecrate it and not have as much uh, importance on it than you do, but it's all empty. In the end, it will leave you bankrupt and empty, the very things this world will say they're, they're promised to fulfill. You know? Are you thirsty for God? That's what we desire here. Is that is is 
We want to be consumed with that thirst. You know, it's not so much that every you know every time we, we open up the Word and we go through it together that, oh, we're going to find some new and groundbreaking theological truth. I've never seen this before. That might or might not happen. That's not what we're talking about. It's the cleansing of the water of the Word. It's, it's the, the realization that Christ desires to satisfy every longing in your being. Every longing that you have. Christ wants to satisfy it. Henry H. Ironside said that salvation is the beginning, but growing in Christ and appropriating Him is a lifelong journey until we end up with Him in glory. I thought that was beautiful. That's not to paraphrase, don't quote that. That's, you know, it's beautiful. When it's been saved, you know, salvation is a wonderful thing. We realize that we need a Savior and that Christ is it. We come to Christ as a Savior, and He becomes Lord of our life, and, and we're saved. We're a new creation of Christ Jesus. And every one of us in here that has had that experience can probably name some of us down to the date and time. I can name the month and the year. But that was a great experience. That was the ultimate. That was what life is all about. That's why Jesus came into the world. That's why God is, is, is so... Uh, desirous that we would grow in Him, as we'll see in the in, in the opening of the second chapter here. Everyone that thirsteth come to the waters. Isaiah says that, and then he goes on to say, "Why spend your money for that which is not satisfied? Why eat as much bread and as good bread as you want when it doesn't satisfy your hunger, and, and so forth?" Why have purses that you have all your money in it and your materialism and you love those things when they have holes in them? And so on and so forth. But I I have met too many Christians that that through ignorance from one way or another, they just don't understand what this life is all about. We've gone through the first chapter of Peter. Wow, what an amazing chapter. If you grasp some of the truths that he has presented in the first chapter regarding what the gospel is, you know, most people know the gospel is John three sixteen. You know, you see it in stadiums and all that. I told you about the fact that you know, you know, I've been in my earlier years to all kinds of different sports stadiums, whatever. And I've always seen it written on cardboard. That's most what the world thinks that the gospel is. But to the Christian, the gospel is not only the fact that we are saved from our sin, we have eternal life, our sins are forgiven us, we have the gift of eternal life, that praise God. We've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, we're new, we're born again, now we belong to God, we're His possession. But that is what the gospel imparts to us. But yet in that impartation is life, life Develops life grows. Life is not stagnant. Any farmer or anybody that has ever had a garden knows that. If your vegetables are stagnant, something's wrong. But yet, why do, why do Christians obey this principle within them that they're saved and they know it, and yet somehow they never seem to get above that? You know, the gospel... The, the, the life of God is, a, is an upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Or as the, the King James says, a high calling of God. So why are we living down in the doldrums? Why, 
And some of us aren't. Praise God. And those of us that aren't, that are growing in Jesus Christ, we need to come alongside those that are less fortunate. Maybe they haven't had good teaching, or, or, or maybe they, they've been uh, the product of, of, you know, of false teaching, whatever the case may be. But to be born again, wow, is life everlasting. But we need to develop the attitude that God is not done with us yet. And that this life involves growth. It involves knowing the truth and allowing the truth to define our character and not our fallen nature to define it. What is character? Character is what we are made of. Character is the expression of what is in the heart. Character is an expression of how we view life. Character is can be received by tradition. I have a lot of characters from my earthly father. But character is defined in the Bible as one who walks in love. That defines his character. Love defines character. So if we don't have the love of Christ abiding within us and we... Our character is very hard to develop because it's going to be offensive. You know, I know that for me, my character was me, you know, as we talked about before. And when we have the love of Christ abiding in us, our character is conformed to His. If you want to know what Jesus or what God is like, look at Christ. You want to know how to love? Look at Christ. You know, I don't know how to deal with spiritual things. Look at Christ. You want to know the, the deal with people that offend you and, and persecute you? Look at Christ. That's character. Character that is not developed in this world that's passing away, but character that is developed from the eternal God that will go on and last forever. You know, we ended last week with, with an astounding statement. This is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. Verse 25. Five points. Real quickly before we go on. Number one, the gospel was preached by the Holy Spirit. It's not a man-made, uh, you know, a bunch of do's and don'ts. It was preached by the Spirit. The gospel was preached by men that were moved by the Spirit. Number two, we have confidence, which is hope. We see that in the 13th verse. We have confidence, which is our hope. We're admonished, number three, to be holy in all our manner of life. Holiness. Not only are we separated unto God, but we are separated from the world. We are, we are separated to God, and we are separated from the influence and the directives of the world. Number four, we're to pass the time here in fear, verse 17. This place is not our own. We are to pass the time here knowing that we have our treasure and our life is in heaven. And so the time that we spend here is not... 
divesting in the things that the world offers, but it's it's conforming our mind to understanding what has been divested in us by the gospel. Think about that. That'll change everything that we do. Doesn't mean that we can't have fun. See, incorrect teaching when it leads to incorrect living. Incorrect doctrine leads to incorrect living. We need to understand what God has given us through the gospel. He has given us life, indeed. There is no life on this earth. It's dying. It's dead. And so are its principles. And number five, we have purified our souls through the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 22, real quick, chapter 1. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth. I thought I knew the truth. I really did. And now that I look back at it and I see before Christ, I thought I knew the truth. And the truth was a good life. Do the best you can. Uh, plan for this and plan for that. And, and I'm not saying that that stuff doesn't have validity. We still have to live. But what I'm saying is, now that the hope that I have, the purifying my souls by being the truth, I live after a different drumbeat. I live after different principles. This world is not my home. I am gearing up to go to my Heavenly Father, and it's the Holy Spirit in my life that gives me the power to know the One who created me. Think about this, for example, before we go on. I think one of the most astounding things that the gospel affords is to have a relationship with the one who created you. That is astounding statement. Especially if you if you have ever done like I have, talk to people that are whoa, big intellectuals and big this and that. To have a relationship with the one who created you. Well, first of all, they got to get past that barrier that we're created. That's an astounding thing. That's what the gospel affords. This is the word by which the gospel is preached to you. Therefore, chapter 2, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. That's what the gospel affords. The gospel affords a life that is uh, a life that's changed. A life that is, that by the very nature of the life that is infused in us, changes us. It changes our direction. It changes our character. It changes what we believe, which is to be true and not something that's false. Listen to the same thing that Paul says in the, in, in the epistle of Titus. He's talking about the grace of God. Listen to this. For the grace of God ha brings salvation. Okay. We've been saved. Has appeared to all men. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live righteously, sober, and godly in this present age. Again, looking for the blessed hope. And the appearing of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it does. It exhorts us to, the, the old has passed away. That the, the philosophy, the direction, everything, the old life is dead. Grace teaches you that. And here Peter is saying, Therefore, there that you know that you understand what the gospel entails. 
That we've not only been born again, but that we have an inheritance that won't fade away, that is yours in heaven. That we not only can rest our hope fully, that we will conduct ourselves knowing that we weren't redeemed with anything other than the precious blood of Christ and so forth. Therefore, knowing those things, lay aside all malice. Malice is of the world. Malice is intent to to do harm. That's basically what malice means. And that can cover a whole gamut of things. Sarcasm, I'm going to get you. Uh, Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, evil speaking. That's the world, my friends. No wonder the scripture says that he who is friends with the world is enemy with God. The life of God is not here. The life of God is, is in those that have been born again that have the truth, that have a different mindset, that aren't going to sacrifice numbers for the word, that aren't going to go out and sacrifice, and they're not cheap, they can't be bought, they're not, they're not prostitutes, so to speak. They cannot be bought with a price because they were bought with the price of Christ. They're heavenly beings, and, and they're not going to afford the world the chance to buy into to any part of their, of their regime. Therefore, laying aside all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, evil speaking. I love verse 2. As newborn babes, or babies, I just like like the title babes. As newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. That's the Benzentine text. Some of the lactic texts that you may grow in respect to salvation. Now, some commentators will say, no, you're going to grow up to salvation. Is that biblical? I don't want to be in a semantic war here. But again, we are saved. When we turn to Christ as our Savior from sin, and we confess our sin. We are born again. We are saved. This is Ironside said. Now God causes the growth in our life to maturity. We can't get around it. We don't have time now to go through all these things. But again, the wonderful thing about this type of ministry is that through the years, we've gone through enough of the Word. This stuff starts coming clear. You know? Crystal clear. It's not the fact that we can take one or two or three different passages and all of a sudden a light goes on. It's the fact that we saturate ourselves with the Word of God and all the truth comes to the top. That's what we're looking at here. So therefore, we're born again. These things, you know what? We need to lay these things aside. As newborn babes desire the, the pure milk of the Word that you may grow. What's going to cause you to grow? The Word of God. There's a lot of people that depend upon a human agency or a ministry or so forth for their growth. And you know what? What we need to do is we need to come and learn. We need to hear the Word of God. But what is the precedent? We all know it by now. We need to take all that we hear here anywhere else and go back to the Word of God and search it diligently. Because that's the precedent that the Word of God lays out to build truth in your life. We've talked about it before. It, it happened with the prophets. Jesus did it himself. The apostles did it, the disciples afterwards. 
You know, a perfect example, and then we'll go on. That we got to glean these understandings. When the two were in Emmaus, Jesus had been crucified, he rose from the dead. He had not ascended to the Father yet. He was in his glorified body. The two men were walking to Emmaus. Jesus appears with them, remember? In Luke 24, around there. What are you guys talking about? Wow, you know, it, the thinking, and I don't know if they said this himself, but the thinking, I know I would be, I go, is this guy, does he really? Have you not even been around? Don't you know what's happened here? If there's a man, Jesus came down, we all held him as a prophet. We all thought that, that he was going to bring in the kingdom of God and so on and so forth. And all of a sudden he crucified him, he's dead. Oh, slow and hard and all to believe that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to suffer and enter in his glory? And beginning with, in the scriptures, he taught them these things concerning himself. And what happened? Bing! Their eyes were opened. They knew the scriptures. They knew the Old Testament. And yet when Jesus said the Old Testament, I would know that their mind readily went back to the word of God and they were changed. And they, I don't believe they walked to Jerusalem. I think they ran. We've seen the Messiah. He's alive. Look what happened in the room just shortly after that when Jesus came in the room. Why do you doubt? Why do troubles rise in your, in your mind? Can't you see my hands on my feet? And beginning with Moses, the prophets, and Psalms, and all things concerning him, he opened their eyes. And so forth, we have that precedent. As newborn babes, we should be taught that desire the pure milk of the word of God that you may grow thereby. I said before, an early part of, of this ministry, you know, when, when a guy becomes like myself, like, you know, you become born again, and it's a radical change from where, the way I was. A radical change. I viewed the world differently. I was different. I wanted to know about this Christ. I wanted to know what happened to me. I was joyous, and yet I didn't know why. I, I, I knew that that... I knew now that Jesus Christ was a Savior, where I didn't before, and I was changed, I wanted to know. Ah, in that really precise moment, that tender moment, that's where Satan does his grievous work. He tries to come in to the tender, the ignorant, the unknowing person, and he tries to come in and weave all kinds of philosophy, all kinds of false teaching, and, and he'll twist just a little bit of, of the truth. No ministry is worth its grain and salt unless they, they constantly drive people to know the Word of God, to get in and do it for themselves. The job of a pastor or any leader of a ministry is not only to feed the Word of God, but to graze his sheep and to guard it. Not to spoon feed it year after year after year after year after year. What happens if the shepherd dies? Are the sheep left alone? The sheep need to know. I got a story that I told once about four years ago, and some of you might remember, but I think it is so telling of what's going on today. I love good stories, by the way. This simply says this. The story is told of a small fishing village where, for many years, a flock of gulls fed on the scraps the fishermen left. You know the story? For many years, this flock of gulls Fell on the scraps, the fishermen left. All was fine and good for the seagulls until eventually the fishing became poor and the villagers moved down the coast to a location where fish were plentiful. 
The seagulls did not follow the fishermen, and because they had lived off the scraps of the fishermen and had never learned to feed themselves, the entire flock of birds died. Believers who feed only on what others teach them are like these foolish seagulls. That was by Anonymous Othwell. You know, where's this sermon today? I have pulled in many, many uh, um, opinions, if you will, based on the word by different teachers. One of the last one was, uh, in fact, I got to know him just a little bit. His name is Larry DeBron. And uh, he was the last one to tell me this. He, he'd been in the ministry, mo- most of it out of this country for years, over 40 years. He said, you know, the average congregation now that uh, that are going to be following Christ no matter what and standing on his word no matter what are usually about 20 and under. He said, but you look at the, the disciples, and you look at some of the churches and, and that most of the people want to expand out into something different and something new. They want to be in a church that's happening. They don't want to be fed pure doctrine so that they could turn around and feed other people. They want to turn and be entertained and, and, and satisfy that spiritual placebo in everybody that wants to be, you know, just enough church to satisfy their uh, burning conscience, but yet not enough church or not enough teaching of the Word of God to change them so that they can, they can go. Jesus, when He left, what's the Great Commission? Go out into all the world, preach the Gospel. Teach them those things that I've taught you. You know? He says, you don't always have me. But if I go away, the Holy Spirit will come and He will bear witness things concerning me. What's happening in all these churches in the the modern church era? And it's nothing new. The Bible talks about this. The emphasis is on supernatural signs and and things of, you know, is that what the Bible says? The Holy Spirit doesn't go, hey, look, I'm here and I'm going to cause dancing in the aisles. I'm going to call people flopping down and and speaking all kinds of gibberish without meanings. I'm going to do all these things so you're going to go, wow, God's really here. No, the Holy Spirit, what He does, He bears witness to Christ. He never calls attention to himself. He bears witness to Christ and his word. Because if we see in Romans chapter 8, that's the thing that God desires, is that we would be conformed to the image of his son. Not that we would be a bunch of sensational idiots that, that walk around. I'm sorry, but I get a little bit upset. My own grandfather was caught into something like that for years. And that is not biblical Christianity. Sometimes I think we're like these foolish seagulls that constantly live from one except, you know, sensational uh, revelation and sensational feeling to another. And yet there are, not, there are other good ministries out there. I say good because they're not teaching false doctrine, but they're dead. They have no enthusiasm. They go from year to year just, just going through the motions. You know, is that why we're here? That is not what Jesus said when he said, Occupy until I come. And just, you know, hang out, and I know life gets boring, but just wait, just hold on. No, that's not what it means. 
as newborn babes. I, des- I, I desire the pure milk of the word. I consider myself still a newborn. I've been in Jesus Christ for, what, almost 33 years. I consider myself a newborn. What's that to eternity? What is a mortal man that, that, that is a recipient of life everlasting? What's a few little years? God desires that I know His Word. He desires that I thirst after Him in a dry and thirsty land. Where am I going to receive the water? Not only the living water that lives within me, but I read Ephesians 5 that, and elsewhere, and also in uh, Ezekiel 34 and, also in, uh, other places, that God's my shepherd, but He's also going to cleanse me of the water of the Word. He's going to refresh me. He's going to cause me to grow. And sometimes the the most amount of growth is the time that we're resting before Him and gleaning His His Word. Don't ever equate rest with not being and meditating upon His Word. He says, desire this Word, that you may grow thereby. Hey, you know what? I'm going to keep just feeding just a little bit to you that we need truth, so you'll keep coming to me. And by the way, when you keep coming to me, keep the checks coming in. You know what? I'm sorry. That's the way it is. And people that say that it's not, then they're deluded. I have a whole list at home on my desk of false teachers that do just exactly that. You know how I know that? Look at their lifestyles. Look at what they teach. Do they teach the pure word of God? Do they teach the doctrine of Christ surrounded by the love of Christ? Here's the big one. Do they teach Christ at all? Do they teach the real word of God? Or do they teach your best life now? They teach what you can glean from God. You know what David said? A man after God's own heart. He said, God, I am poor and I am needy. I seek for you with all my heart in a weary land. You seek the pure word of God that you may grow. You know what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, one of my favorite passages about this. He said, for this reason we also thank God without ceasing. Because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men. Oh, that's okay. I'm just going to, you know. (laughs) But as in truth, the word of God, which effectively works in you who believe. There's the only thing that works in your life as a Christian, my friends, is the Bible. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is the only thing that will not only pass bone and marrow, it's the only thing that will not only pass spirit and soul, it's the only thing that will go right into the tent of the heart and expose everything your dark, wicked heart is in there. That's the only thing that will do it is the Word of God. Hence, we get saved by the Word of God. We get saved by this. And it's preached in power by the Holy Spirit. Wow. Verse 3, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. I'm going to read you something. I love this verse. It's in Psalm 34. You don't have to turn there. 
But if you're writing notes or whatever, I think it's Psalm 34, 8. Let me see, I have it in my notes here. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Now we have a couple other places real quick that come to mind that phrase trust in him, and that's Psalm chapter two or second Psalm verse twelve, blessed all they are put their trust in him. And Proverbs thirty-five. Every word of God is pure. Blessed are those that put their trust in him. It is growing by the word. It is knowing the truth of the word. It is knowing that the word is true and that this is God's word. And I desire to read it, not as a religious exercise. I desire to read it so I can be conformed to the image of Christ. No wonder Satan's trying to tear the word apart today. No wonder he's trying to tell all these churches, well, you don't need... (laughs) Check everything out that I say. Okay, don't take it from me about all these things that are happening in Christian Christianity today, uh, or what have you. But it's being, you know, the, the whole pervading attitude over, over nine-tenths of what's going on out there is, I'll tell you the truth. You just, you just come to me, I'll tell you the truth. This ministry has the truth. This is the truth. This is the warp, fiber, and fabric of everything that is truth right here. And when we get into Peter's second epistle, which I don't want to rush things because I like to relish in goodness, he says this, As his divine power has given us all things, not some things, not maybe just a little, but you know what, just some things. You've got to go to you know, Carl, you know, Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung and all these other people to get it. No, he says, all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things that pertain to spiritual, true, and eternal life, and everything that pertains to a godly character that God approves is right here. Everything. No wonder Peter, after explaining the preciousness of the gospel, starts out saying, you know what? I know you newborn babes. I want you to desire the pure milk of the word because you're going to grow by that. Because after I leave, I'm stirring up your minds by the way you're reminded because I'm going to leave. And as Paul says, he comes right in there. And we can build a chain of references between all the apostles of this. And he says this, Peter, about I'm leaving. I'm going to stir up your minds. Paul says, uh, you know what? I know after I leave that savage wolves are going to come in. And the apostle John, who, who leaned against Jesus' breast, says, in the end times, there's deceivers are going to come. Many deceivers in the second letter out in the world and so forth. You can see a precedent here. And Peter is simply saying, watch out for these wolves that are going to go against that precedent. And that's what's happening today. You know, uh, verse 3, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, the Lord is good, he's kind. I love what Dave Hunt was fond of saying. You better fear the Lord. You're going to learn to love Him. (laughs) You better fear Him. He's God. He has the right over every breath that you breathe. The next breath you take is His right to give it or not to give it. You better fear God, but you'll learn to love Him. I love that. That's exactly what happened to me. Oh God, I'm a sinner! And yet, 
all these years later, I love him. I love him. If indeed you've tasted that the Lord is gracious. It says, coming to him, verse 4, as a living stone. Coming to him as to a living stone. Rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. Wow. Did you know that you have a faith that is absolutely opposed to the atmosphere of this world? This is the same world that Jesus was crucified and has not gotten any better. Like we've said before, it's gotten worse. They would crucify him today just like they did almost 2,000 years ago. Paul said an amazing thing in, in uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. He says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. My friends, that is absolutely opposite of what this world has to offer. And unfortunately, some of these other sects of, of what they call Christianity. For me to live is Christ... To live in a world that crucified my Lord. To live in a world that hates God. To live in a world that loves more pleasures than they do God. To live amongst false brethren. That's going to take me down. And you can go on and on. To die is gain. Are you kidding me? To die is gain. Can you really trust in a gospel that you are not looking forward to being with Christ? Can you really trust in a gospel that you cannot fully rest in the fact that yes, you are going to die. But you know what? I have no fear of death. I know what lays beyond the grave for me. I know it. Chosen by God and precious. You know, Psalm 118 says, again, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. This is the stone that was rejected by religion. It was rejected by the spirit of Antichrist. It was rejected by the world, but it's, it, we love it. it. We love it because God has given us a taste of what it means to know him. And Christ is the one that bought and paid for our eternal well-being. You know, Jesus uh, Jesus talking to the Pharisees, and, and uh, they knew that they were talking about him. He was talking about them. He said, you know what? Basically, I'm it. I'm that stone that you're going to reject. Because they were religious. There was no more religious people than the Pharisees. And as long as you did what they did and conformed to their practices and their rights, you were in. That's why I was so fearful that in the time of Christ, it was reported that anybody who spoke well of him was ejected out of the synagogue. And as anybody that, that talks well of Christ, especially in this religious arena which we live, are going to reject it from that. They don't want to hear it anymore. Which camp are you in? But look at this. We know that if we come to him, to a living stone, he was rejected by all kinds of men. But he was chosen by God and precious. Look at verse 5. You also as living stones are being built up into a spiritual house. A holy priesthood. 
to offer up spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Well, that is really, really a stupendous statement. Paul says in Ephesians 2, uh, verse 20, listen to this, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Well, let me stop there. That's only a, that's only a quarter of the rest of the verse, but let me stop there. You're being built on the foundation of apostles and prophets. You know what the new... Uh, Apostolic Reformation is saying, uh-uh. no, you're not being you're, you're not being built on the, on the foundation of apostles and prophets. We have new foundations. We have new apostles. We have new prophets. We have a new way of looking at the scriptures. In fact, Rob Bell and his wife was quoted as saying, "We used to look at the Bible as a divine document, but not anymore. It's kind of a man-made thing. It's kind of a mystical thing for us. That's a new way of us looking at it." I point you back to, to the book that we have, Wandering Stars, by Keith Gibson. Very, very difficult read. But uh, we must not keep our eyes in the sand. So he says that we're built. You and I are built on the apostles and the prophets. Have the prophets ever lied? <laughs> Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building... Being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. That is why in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and chapter 6, Paul talks about the inhabitation, one of the, of the church of God, and one of the individual as a temple of God. We, we as a corporate body of Christ, are being built up as a house of God, as a tabernacle, so to speak. We know that by, by chapter 12 of that, of that epistle, that it's because the Spirit has put us into the body of Christ. So those that are born again and spiritually into the body of Christ, we are being built up corporately as that temple, that body of Christ. Then he makes it more personal. He goes in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, that you yourself are that temple of the Holy Spirit. Touch no unclean thing, come out from among them, you know. We're built on this. A holy priesthood. He says the same thing in verse 9, but, but goes on to explain. Wow, time flies, huh? Therefore it is also contained in the scripture, verse 6, Behold, I lay in Zion. You find that in Isaiah 28. A chief cornerstone. Elect. Precious. He who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe he is precious, but to those who are disobedient or disbelieve, you know, that's a that's an interesting play on words because you know disobedient disbelief are, are synonymous. If you are disobedient to the Lord on a continual basis, it means you don't believe something that he has told you would do. You know, in Psalm 78, if you want to read it, it's a good treatise of, of the Israelites marching through the wilderness. They saw everything God did. They partook of his water. They ate his manna. But yet, you know, they wanted more. And the Bible says that they disbelieved in the salvation of their God. They knew God was doing it, but they disbelieved him because what he furnishes, 
is from him for our good. God knows what's good and best for us. And by being disobedient, complaining, and everything else, you disbelieve in God. It's a little side note there. Verse 7, Therefore to you who believe he is precious, again, but to those who are disobedient or unbelieving, the stone which, eject, which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And again, you'll find out in Psalm 118, verse 22, and so forth. I've got a few more minutes, so I'll be done. You know, uh, the stone which the builders rejected, who are the builders? Certainly not the ones that, that are, were under the power, let's say, of Nimrod, that equated with the Tower of Babel and so forth. They were in the land of Shinar. By the very definition, they were in the land of idolatry. They were in the land of people that didn't want God in their life. They were in the land of people that said, move over, Rover, let us take over. We're going to build ourselves a, a wonderful society. We don't need God. We not only see that today, but we also see the fact that Jesus is saying that, you know, the stone, the one that's going to make the cornerstone of your life and is your life is being rejected even today. But to the ones that don't reject it, the ones that have tasted the goodness of God, this has become the very cornerstone. Not only is that, but God's, God has the final word. God set up the cornerstone of try and true, and no man is going to be able to erase that, even though they try. And you think about why the Pharisees and religious leaders got so indignantly angry when he said, you're the ones that are rejecting it. says verse 8, and a rock of stumbling and a rock of offense or a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense you know after putting about three or four different pages of notes on what that means I finally have come to a conclusion there are a few points I want to I want to exact and uh, you can find these points if you if you have a uh, Schofield study Bible. If not, listen to, let's listen to these points. You can find it in, in, in the Word of God. He just summarized it. Jesus Christ is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Number one, he's, He is the rock that was struck on the cross so that life may flow from Him to all who will drink. We see that in Exodus and, and elsewhere. You know, it's pretty plain, the types that, you know, um, and that was that was one of the reasons why Moses was banished with not coming into the promised land, because he didn't obey God and how God was to dispense his life giving water. The rock was struck, the water flowed, and they were quenched by it. You know, to the church, it's a foundation and a cornerstone. This is our foundation for, for reasons we laid out in the beginning of this time together this morning and elsewhere. To the Jews, he was a stumbling stone. To the Gentile world power, he's going to be that stone that's cut without hands, that mountain that rolls and destroys everything according to Daniel chapter 2. And yet to unbelievers... He's going to be that crushing stone of judgment that will grind everything to powder. 
But to us, he's precious. Therefore, in verse 7, therefore do you who believe he is precious. I venture to say this, the more that we, we grow in our Christian life, we realize how much precious the Lord Jesus Christ is. He is precious. Don't give me don't give me riches beyond ending, because they will end and I will be bankrupt. Don't give me my lust full of my every desire that my body and, and mind even lust for, because I know that will be depleted and I will end up with nothing. Don't give me what I think that I desire the most that will make my life complete. But Lord God, open my mouth wide that, that you may fill it. Feed me with the food, Lord, that's convenient for me, lest I be full and, and deny you, and lest I be poor and take your, take your name in vain and steal and cause all kinds of havoc. I want to be... Somebody that beholds and sees how precious he is because the world's rejecting him, religion rejects him, false Christianity rejects him, false teachers reject him. Uh, it's coming down to the point where who do you think is going to set up the religion of the Antichrist? It's the church that is devoid of the Spirit, it's religion that's devoid of him. He is a rock of he's a rock of offense. You don't think that's how you go talk to twenty people tomorrow about the cross of Christ? I guarantee you, not a twenty will go. That's the most beautiful thing I've heard. I'm going to repent, and, and that's it. No, it's an offense to people. I don't need to be saved. But look at what you are, verse nine. I'll end with verse nine. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. His own special people. You see that? His own special people. That you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Now, by that very definition of darkness and light, we can go to Proverbs chapter 9, and it explains very well Darkness and light. The wisdom of the world is darkness. The wisdom of Christ is light. You cannot get around it. I don't say uh, Proverbs 9 because that lays it out very, very clearly. God has chosen me. You know, Schofield says that one of the chief privileges, and this, this is as well, you look at Hebrews chapter 9 and elsewhere, one of the chief privileges of a priest was access to God. We are unconditionally a kingdom of priests because of Jesus Christ. It is our privilege to be able to go in the presence of God. I don't need a mediator. Jesus Christ is the only mediator between me and the Father. And He is God. I have access to the throne of God through the blood of Jesus Christ, the writer of the Hebrews says. I'm a chosen generation. You're a chosen generation. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. His own special people, that, he, that we may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And he explains, verse 10, And once we're not a people, but now are the people of God. 
You had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And that is all because we've been born again. Because we've been born again, we've obtained mercy. Because we've born again, we are now a people of God versus not a people of God. You know, it's a fallacy today to think, well, we're all God's creatures. So now we're all God's offspring. Absolutely. Just like Paul says in, in Acts chapter 17, trying to reason with the, the Stoics and the philosophers. Yes, we are his offspring. Absolutely. But he is not our intimate father. We don't have a relationship with him because our relationship before Christ was marred by sin. Remember, getting back to the beginning of this discussion, sin, and I'll close with these two points. Sin always causes separation. And it always causes death. That's what sin is. Sin is the opposite of life. In Him there is no sin. Our life in Him constitutes a relationship that is so tied to Christ that when we sin down here as a Christian, it's called defilement. It's called something that mars our fellowship. It's something that when we come to confess before God, it's an intimate matter now. It's a family matter. Okay? Because the offense of the cross... And that Jesus Christ hung there personally, naked in the rain and in the dark, suffering for you and for I. Because of that, now I am a child of God. Now, Christian, if you are a child of God, go out and do what you're created to be and to proclaim the praises of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. We have what religion people don't have. We have what the world doesn't have. I have I'm more wealthy than a millionaire. I have the greatest standing in life. So do you. Because I love Christ and I bind in Him and walk in Him, I am going to look forward to that day when I stand before Him and He's going to say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. I'm faithful to Him. He's my Lord. What's, what's the guy that has more money than this world can afford? What's going to happen if he doesn't have Christ and he stands before God? He's going to say, God's going to say, your name is not found here. Away from me in outer darkness. What's all your millions and everything else going to do for you now? We are rich beyond all imagination. And this is all because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All because of a stone that not only the religious, but the world has rejected. This is the cornerstone. This is what God, this is his eternal life. And I will sum it up in the... I don't know how to say this any better than what Jesus said, and I will close with this. John chapter 17. This is an astounding, astounding declaration. And remember, John 17 was was a dialogue between Jesus and his Father. John chapter 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's eternal life. That we may know the one who created us. That we, may, that we may realize that our Creator has become our Redeemer. 
that we may realize that God loves me beyond imagination, and yet God is holy, pure, right, just. What's he going to do? He's going to send his own son to fulfill his own types and his own scriptures by being an innocent substitute and walking this life that I in perfect obedience that I can't. So therefore, that not only proves that he's my perfect sacrifice, but he's my representative. And he goes to the cross, and he is the innocent substitute for my sin. God heaped my sin upon Christ, and Christ died as that innocent substitute by becoming sin for me, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God, Paul says. And now Jesus said, Father, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Leon, do you want to pray, please? Thank you, Lord, for your word. It is the words of life to us. Thank you for sending a Redeemer to pay the penalty that we owe, that we may and we will be with you for all eternity. We thank you so much in Jesus' name. Mm. Amen. Oh, as much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. Listen to this. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will be their acceptance but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches are broken off, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and of the fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches but if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Wow. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. That blindness of part has happened to Israel. This is the understanding we're at today, brethren. Again, I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion. Back, Wow, we're back in Micah 5 too. There's going to be one that's going to come from me that's going to be ruler over Israel. And he was born... 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. You know, the Orthodox, a lot of the Orthodox Jews now are still looking for the Messiah. He's come. The deliverer will come out of Zion. He will turn away and God knows from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Wow. And that's what's happening today. Israel's being regathered into the land. We see uh, alliances with with uh, nations we've never seen before happening today. We see 
the capability of global war like we've never seen, like today, on and on. The scriptures are being fulfilled. Father, I thank you for this evening and the study we've had. I pray that the richness of your word would would just uh, go down in the fiber of our being. Lord, that we would look at the world through the the lens of Scripture through your eyes, that we look at our life through Scripture, and we see how our life is a blessing, but yet we can lay in those promises contented and restful, knowing that we are kept by a God who does not commit abortion. He does not put on probation. What he says, he will do. And Father, I pray that you would keep the foundation of life solid, strong, and we would stand on the Word and the Word alone, anticipating your return. And Father, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Christ, are you sure right now that your sins are forgiven? Are you assured that you will not face the judgment of God and be banished forever to a place called hell, which is from the presence and the glory away from the presence of God Himself in torment? Are we sure? Because if you're not, you can't rest completely and fully. You still have fear. And the Bible says that perfect love casts out fear. Because my judgment was heaped upon Christ. You know, he'll wear wear the scars for all eternity of suffering. We need to be sure of this salvation. I think there's some listening that need to know that that might have been going to church for a long time, that might have thought they knew their Bible, that might have, you know, but they never were really sure. You can be sure now that you are a sinner. We all are. The only difference between me and somebody that's dead in their sin is I'm a sinner saved by grace. I am alive because Christ lives in me. I have a future. I have a hope. I know that my sins are forgiven, that that whether I live or whether I die, I'm the Lord's. I know that when I I die and I stand before Him, I am not going to be condemned for my sinful condition. I know that when I stand before Him, I will be welcomed because He is my Savior and my Lord, and He longs for me to be with Him. If you cannot be assured of this in your own life, you need to repent, which means to come to Christ and turn your life around and face Him as your Savior. Face Him as the one who has taken all the punishment for your sin. He has answered for every awful sin you could ever do. He's answered for it. He was judged for it. He died for it. And He rose again a new creation. And Peter said, that's our living hope. Because Christ rose from the dead. And He's coming back. 
And Father, I thank you for the word this morning. Lord, I just ask that that those that that are listening uh, by the internet or what have you, the Lord, that they would, would say, in effect, God, I have sinned. I have not given you a second thought. I have not given you your due. And I have sinned. I have gone my own way. I have done my own thing. Not giving a I'm giving a hoot about the things that that were important to you. That I didn't give honor and homage to the one who created me. That I didn't give you a second thought. But Lord, I realize that I'm a sinner. And I need to be saved. Now I turn to the Lord Jesus Christ who paid for my sins upon the cross. And that three days later, he rose from the dead. And he bids me to follow him, and I place my trust in him. And that I would know that I have a hope today, tomorrow, and the next day, because Christ rose from the dead. And God, I know that by that happening, that you showed me that my sins are gone if I put my trust in Christ. And I receive that gift of eternal life and forgiveness now. And as Jesus died on the cross and said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He died for me so that I won't have to suffer separation from you, God, forever. I want to be born again. Ask him into your heart, into your life, as your savior from sin. And that's exactly what he will give you, is a new life and forgiveness of sins. And Father, I pray this be the plight of us all, that we'd understand your word and that we would rejoice in it. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.